Hi, ladies. Welcome to Women in the Word. What a great day it is to be studying the truth of God's Word together. I'm Shelley Davis. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team. I love being here with you uh, each and every day that we do this together. How many of you have a big sister? Um, I did. She was a great big sister, a great big sister. She went to the Lord 18 months ago. I miss her every day. I still do that thing where something happens in my life and I pick up the phone to call her before I remember that that doesn't work anymore. But if you had a big sister, then you probably understand uh, what I'm talking about when I say big sisters rule. Big sisters rule. And if you are a big sister, you're saying, of course we do, of course we do. Um, so I wanna share with you some of the big sister rules that were unspoken in our relationship. And uh, she held these rules and imposed them on my life simply because she was born first. She was born first, and I could never argue with that. No matter what else I could argue with, that was something I could never argue with. So here are a couple of our big sister rules that were unspoken in our house. The first one was, she was always right. She was always right. No matter what it was about, um, there was really no point in my arguing with her because she was always right. Secondly, she always picked the game we played. If I wanted to ride bikes and she wanted to play dolls, I can guarantee you we were playing dolls. That was the end of the story. Uh, the third one was if there was something we were supposed to share, like the hairdryer or the bathroom, for some reason she was in charge of scheduling my time with it. You know, she would say, oh no, don't use the hairdryer this afternoon. I'm gonna need it, you know. Or you're going to take your bath first because I'm watching TV. So she was definitely in charge of me. You know, as adults, we laughed and laughed and laughed at all the things that um, she made me do and how I totally did them. I was just that little sister that tagged along and said, okay, I'll do that. I'll clean up your room. I'll do uh, whatever. Um, we're gonna open our Bibles together this morning. We're not gonna talk about big sister rules. We're gonna talk about God's rules for the nation of Israel. Let's pick up on that story where we left it last week. The Israelites were camped at Mount Sinai. They've spent three days consecrating themselves to meet their holy God. Moses has gone up and down that mountain, up and down that mountain countless times. And now the entire nation of Israel is assembled at the foot of the mountain prepared to hear the voice of God. And we are gonna pick that story up in chapter 20 beginning in verse one, so read that with me. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What we have here is the beginning of what we know is the Mosaic Covenant. Now the Mosaic Covenant was a conditional covenant where God makes obedience to his laws, the condition 
for the nation of Israel to receive his blessing. Now, for the conditional Mosaic covenant, obedience equaled blessings. Uh, disobedience equaled curses. You can read all about that in Deuteronomy. As God begins giving his law here to the nation of Israel, um, he uses the framework of an ancient Mideast treaty that's called a Suizeran Treaty. A Suizeran Treaty in Moses' day was how kings ruled those people that were subject to them. If they had conquered a territory, the people there were their vassals, and then he created a Suizeran Treaty. Now, God identifies himself here in verse 2, doesn't he? Just like a king would do in a Suizeran Treaty. And then God recounts his deliverance of the nation of Israel from slavery. Treaties in the ancient uh, Near East between kings and vassals would begin by laying out an, a historical relationship before they began giving the stipulations of whatever the treaty was. God's historical relationship with the nation of Israel is that he is the one true God and he has rescued them from slavery out of Egypt. He is Israel's deliverer. That's his historical relationship with them. And they are to obey the laws that he will be giving them as stipulation of his covenant, simply based on these two things, who he is and what he has done for them. Okay, so let's read some more. Let's read beginning in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love of those who steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, what he started out here doing after he establishes that historical relationship with the nation of Israel is giving what we and Charlton Heston knows are the Ten Commandments. They are the heart of the law, and it is this heart of the law that, in, that then makes up part of the stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant. Now, the Mosaic Covenant is bigger than the law. As a covenant, the Mosaic Covenant uh, includes the law. It includes the sacrifices that the Lord is going to be showing them um, as we go through these chapters down the way. It also includes that... Um, 
uh, obedience clause. Uh, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you do not, I will curse you. The Ten Commandments here in Exodus um, get the law underway, but they don't complete it. The law is going to be completed as you read through Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers. Those are going to um, conclude the legal stipulations of the law. And as we talk about the law here, we all need to remember that um, the law and the Ten Commandments were not given so that the Israelites could attain righteousness, was it? Or so that they could work their way towards salvation. You know, God has already redeemed the nation of Israel. We saw that um, earlier in Exodus where he brings them out of Egypt uh, after the Passover, where they have placed the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, that is their redemption. The law really serves a couple of great purposes for the nation of Israel. First, it is a civil and religious constitution for them. Um, it outlines and reveals God's divine rules for human conduct. It's like our constitution that guides our government. That's what you hear when you turn on the news today, isn't it? Is that constitutional? Does that fit in with our constitution? That is what um, the law is for the nation of Israel. It's their divine and uh, religious and civil constitution. Um, secondly, what the law does here is to reveal Israel's sinful nature, doesn't it? And the sinful nature of all mankind throughout the ages since uh, Moses penned these Ten Commandments straight from the voice of God. Uh, it reveals Israel's sinful nature in contrast to the holiness and righteousness of their one true God. Now, keeping these laws of the Mosaic Covenant serves to set Israel apart from all the nations of the earth and point others to the one true God. Now, the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments that we just read reveal Israel's responsibility to the law. They are vertical commandments. They reveal Israel's responsibility to God. And listed first, before any other commandment, is Israel's responsibility to worship the one true God. From his own mouth to the nation of Israel, God himself says, you shall have no other gods before me. His intention here is that Israel would never cheapen or deny God's righteousness, his uniqueness, his sovereignty by setting up any other God as a rival to the one true God of all the universe. He is calling them here out of polytheism into monotheism. They are to have one true God forever and always. God's second command that we read here is that they are not to construct an idol to worship, nor are they look around to anything in creation. He's really specific here. He says, not in the heavens, not on the earth, not under the sea. Are you to pick or choose anything here to put in God's place? The people of Israel are God's creatures. They are God's creation. He is their creator. 
and they must not, with their own hands, put themselves in the place of the one true God by creating something else to worship. With this command, we also, for the first time, see the consequences of disobedience and uh, the consequence, the blessing of obedience. If one generation chooses to disobey by creating an idol to worship, more than likely, that sin will translate down generation to generation, parent to grandchildren. God's plan and purpose here is not to punish a righteous generation for what happened in an unrighteous generation. His plan is to let them know an unrighteous generation passes on that righteousness and the wrath of God will follow that unrighteousness. By contrast, generations who worship God alone will translate that faith generation to generation, from parent to children, children to grandchildren. Um, I heard such a great illustration of this recently in the evening Bible study. There was um, one of, a gal in there that gave a praise. She is a godly and faithful gal, and she stood up and told how she had been keeping her triplet grandchildren and she um, needed something to entertain these three young children and she thought about turning on the television but instead she decided to get out her craft box and make a wordless book with them. Now if you don't know what a wordless book is, if you haven't been involved in children's ministry, it is a simple creation where the color paper tells the story of the gospel. Black is for sin, red is for the blood of our Lord Jesus, white is for when we are washed clean. Gold is for the streets of heaven where we're all going to go as believers and green is for our growth in Christ. So this great uh, faithful grandmother made these books with her three little grandchildren, told the story of the gospel and before they were finished one of them looked at her and said can I pray and ask Jesus into my life? And so she did. Um, she said it was a remarkable moment and opportunity. And then a little while later when the kiddos had gone off to play, another one came and crawled up in her lap and said, would you tell me that story again? And then that kiddo prayed and accepted Jesus. These are the blessings that fall on future generations of those who love and obey the one true God. Now in verse 7 we see commandment number 3, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Your uh, translation may say misuse the name of the Lord your God. And you know over the years we've probably all heard someone who used God's name in a frivolous or even um, terribly inappropriate manner. And most of us really didn't have any recourse except to simply ignore it, didn't we? Um, but God does not ignore it. God definitely does not ignore it when we misuse his name. God describes, God's name describes his very character, his attributes, his righteousness, his holy nature. God's name is the essence of all that he is. And as such, his name must be protected and revered and respected. This command also includes, along with using God's name in an inappropriate manner, it includes using God's name um, of the Lord to invoke 
an insincere or false oath. Look at Leviticus 19 on your verse sheet, which I have to find here real quickly. Okay, ladies, someone may need to bring me one. I know I have one. Oh, what? I found it. I found it. I got it. It was behind these great leader forms, small group leader forms that we took this morning. So I just want to encourage you all because God obviously put it right here in my lesson to say, uh, please uh, fill in your leader forms if you have them. So Leviticus 19, 12 says, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord um, using the Lord's name for evil or selfish reasons not only brings dishonor to him, it's an effort to use his authority for our own personal gain. Now, the fourth commandment, God creates a day of rest so that his people might worship him and give him glory. You know, for the Israelites, they have been in slavery in Egypt in a polytheistic uh, community, they have not had the opportunity more than likely to worship their God on a regular and routine basis on a Sabbath that is set aside for that. For the Israelites, the Sabbath was designated from here on out as the seventh day of the week, which for them was Saturday. And this is based on the Lord's work in creating the universe and his inhabitants in six days and resting on the seventh. Um, there's no stronger example than God himself, is there? If we're going to emulate something, let's emulate the precedent that our God set when he created the universe. This is not to be a day of laziness for the Israelites, but rather it's to be a day to strengthen their relationship, to focus on who their God is and how they can worship him um, through study and rest. Um, now, this is the only command, interestingly enough, that's not repeated in the New Testament in some form or fashion. The New Testament church, uh, all of us worship and celebrate our God on the first day of week, the week. That is Sunday, and we do that as a memorial to our Lord Jesus because that is the day of the week that the resurrection occurred. Now, these first four vertical commandments are foundational for the next six commandments that are going to reveal Israel's responsibility to each other. It is these four commandments that are going to set Israel apart from all the other peoples of the earth in their worship of the one true God. It will bring them to be a monotheistic nation who worships God alone. Now the next six commandments, these are horizontal commandments. These go out to the people and the community around us. They will set Israel apart from other nations in how they conduct their society, their relationships, and their families. Um, they are the foundation of a reasonable orderly and law-abiding society. So let's read together beginning in verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife 
or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor. Now, we start off here with commandment number five about honoring parents. Israel was a nation in which parental authority was a primary institution and part of their culture, very dissimilar to what we experience today parents ruled in the culture of Israel. Um, and I think this one can sometimes be difficult. I don't know whether it was for the nation of Israel, but sometimes people today have struggle with this one because not all parents are great parents, are they? And not all children have a desire to honor their parents, whether they were great parents or not. When I read this, I'm always reminded of Jacob uh, that we learned about in Genesis because Jacob did not honor his father Isaac when he deceived him to steal his brother's birthright. You know, God places this command here strategically, actually, uh, as he begins these final six commandments because parents are the life givers and the authorities in the lives of their children just as God is the life giver and the authority for the nation of Israel. This command also comes with a promise, doesn't it? A promise of long life in the land. This is about the covenant that God is making with Israel as he sends them in to the promised land. This isn't about if you're really great to your parents, you're going to live to be 150. This really uh, truly means that when children in the nation of Israel respect and submit to the God-given authority that parents have, he will bring blessing to the nation and it will live long in the land that he has given them. God will sustain them generation upon generation as they honor um, the parents in the family. Now, the sixth commandment is one that brings order and stability to the Israelite society because it prohibits murder, premeditated taking of another life. And this command reflects the truth that uh, people are created in the image of God and as such, life should be protected. Life should be protected. You know, our lives and the days of our lives all belong to God alone, don't they? He is the creator and proprietor of our life. So only God can extend the lease he gives us on our life. Only God can revoke that lease um, that he gives us. But interestingly enough, God does open, leave the door open here for capital punishment and for the casualties of war because the Hebrew word for murder here um, used here specifies murder and not killing. Under Mosaic law, the Israelites actually practiced capital punishment for um, a variety of different things, uh, and for murder and for several other offenses. The seventh commandment is one that God has given his nation because he desires to protect families and the home. They are a priority in God's economy. Adultery or sexual unfaithfulness destroys families and marriages, doesn't it? And in God's economy, marriage is the building block of society. It was the building block for the nation of Israel, uh, and the marriage covenant is a holy commitment made to God and before God. God's passion 
for faithful, committed marriages and for the sanctity of the family is real, ladies. It is real. Our culture denies that, but the truth of the scripture is God values committed marriages. In fact, adultery is such a serious offense before God that in Leviticus, it is one of the offenses that comes with capital punishment. Look at Leviticus 20.10 on your verse sheet. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, and both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. That would rock our culture, wouldn't it? The Eighth Commandment protects individual property. Israel was not a communistic society. God expected them to take care of their neighbors and to be compassionate and concerned, uh, but he still upheld the, the rights of individual ownership of property. Um, and goods. And Paul supports this command, the individual ownership and property of goods in the New Testament and the principle of work rather than thievery. Thievery. Look at Ephesians 4:28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. If we're going to support compassion in our lives, then we cannot be thieves. We must be laborers. And that began here with the Eighth Commandment. Now, the Eighth Commandment and the Ninth Commandment are closely connected to each other because the Ninth Commandment prohibits lying or false testimony against another person. The standard of truth and honesty is what lends stability to any society, isn't it? Protecting people's reputations was important to God. It provides safeguards for the ability to provide law and order in the court and legal system. If you could never trust anyone's testimony in court because they were bringing false witness, the entire legal system would not stand. And taken with the eighth commandment to not steal, what does that tell us about our God? It tells us that God's law and his heart condemns dishonesty in general. God is a God of truth and honor. Now, the 10th commandment concerns desiring things which are not ours. Now, it does not condemn coveting or desire in general, does it? It's okay to want a better job. It's okay to hope someday you will be able to buy your own home or have a spouse, or have your own children. What is prohibited here is the coveting of what rightfully belongs to someone else. Hoping or dreaming to have things that are good or proper is not contrary to God's law, as long as it doesn't do one of two things. As long as that longing doesn't replace God as an idol in your life. If your longing for a spouse or a new home replaces God, then it has become an idol and that is wrong. It's also wrong if it leads us into sinful behavior, isn't it? If coveting or desiring something so strongly, it becomes the, the starting point for stealing or even adultery, um, that is wrong as well. So God calls us all here to respect what belongs to others, both in thoughts and in actions. 
Now these 10 commandments are only the beginning of the stipulations of the law that are part of the Mosaic Covenant. But certainly they are the heart that everything else is built around. They reveal the character and the nature of God. They also reveal what he desires for the character and the nature of his people. And they provide a clear path to obedience that will lead to blessing. God has not let them guess here what will lead to his blessing in their lives. He has spelled it out for them in these Ten Commandments. And Jesus himself also sums up these Ten Commandments in Matthew 22. Look at that with me on your verse sheet. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. All the law stands on the vertical relationship that we have with God and on our horizontal relationships with others. Both of those are proclaimed by our Lord Jesus here. One theologian I read when I was studying this described it this way. The law stands first on these two commandments given by our Lord Jesus. Then it stands on the Ten Commandments of Exodus 20. And finally, it stands on the 613 laws that traditional Judaism records in the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, the people, we left them all standing at the foot of that mountain, didn't we? Um, as God instructed so they could hear God's voice. Let's hear their reaction to them. What happens after they hear God's voice? Look at verse 18 with me. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness of where God was. You know, God spoke the Ten Commandments in the hearing of all the Israelites as they stood at the base of Mount Sinai. And along with that, he had this incredible display of power, the smoke and the thunder and the trumpets and the mountain trembling. Um, he wanted them to see that power. That was intentional and on purpose. He wanted them to know that he is a holy God and a righteous God and um, not to mess with him. He wanted their observation of who he was to bring about their obedience. Um, and we're going to see as we walk through um, Exodus how well that works. They were awestruck by it. They were awestruck by it. But unfortunately, they were so awestruck by God that they feared for their life. So right here, um, both God and the Israelites switch gears. Uh, for the Israelites, it becomes Moses being their mediator between them and God. They simply want God to speak to Moses because they are frightened and he will tell them God's words. And that's what happens in the book of Exodus from here on out. 
God switches gears here because he's completed the Ten Commandments. And beginning in verse 22 begins what uh, the nation of Israel knows as the Book of the Covenant. Now, what the Book of the Covenant does, it's included in the law, which is part of the Mosaic Covenant. But what the Book of the Covenant does is explain, expand, and apply these 10 commandments. God addresses these 10 commandments in a more elaborate way. God has come from heaven to earth to give them the 10 commandments directly, and now he's going to give Moses on top of the mountain the book of the covenant. Um, If Israel's law is what is considered their constitution. Um, The Ten Commandments considered their constitution. The Book of the Covenant is probably going to be considered their Bill of Rights because it is the Book of the Covenant where God lays out in detail the rights of the people. So let's look in verse 22 as God begins the Book of the Covenant. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you, you shall see... Say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourself that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings, your peace offerings, and your sheep and your oxen. He begins the book of the covenant here by elaborating on those first two commandments, doesn't he? That concerns prohibition on idols and how to construct an altar appropriately so that the altar itself does not become more important than the God they are worshiping. And these um, are his elaborations on those two vertical commands. And after that, he begins in chapter one to elaborate on those horizontal commands. He starts in chapter 21 with statutes about how to care for um, slaves or servants. Now, I think whenever we read in the Bible about how to care for slaves, we're all probably wondering why God doesn't simply outlaw slavery and get it over with once and for all. And unfortunately, there's really no one that can answer that question. So we're all gonna take it with us to heaven when we go and ask God about it then. But what we do see here as he begins his statutes to elaborate on how you uh, deal horizontally with those people around you, we're gonna see that God protects slaves. Slavery was actually widely practiced in the near Middle East, but if you look carefully at God's instructions here, you see that for Israel, slavery was meant to be nothing more than indentured servitude. These were men, men of Israel, who for financial reasons had become servants of their neighbors around them um, for financial reasons, and they received their freedom at the end of the um, agreement that they had made. So look at verses two and three with me in chapter 21. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, and in the seventh, he shall go free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. Israel was basically meant to be a society of free men who occasionally renounced that freedom for a period of time for economic reasons. And God protected those men 
um, through the statutes here and the book of the covenant. Now, where women are concerned, it gets a little more complicated. If you read through chapter 21, let's read verses 7 through 11. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he was broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out with nothing without payment or money. Now, women were under the authority um, of their fathers and husbands in ancient days. And what these verses describe here is really not slavery. What they're describing here is arranged marriages because women married after um, that marriage was arranged by their um, fathers or whoever the patriarch in their family was. Now, it was the norm in Israel's day um, because women basically had no rights in that near ancient uh, Midi's culture, uh, fathers frequently sold their neighbors, sold their daughters to well-to-do neighbors uh, rather than have them marry the poor farmer that lived next door to them. Um, and the reason they did that is it improved the whole lot of the family. When a daughter was sold to a wealthy neighbor, then the rest of the family was taken care of. If the new husband um, that she had been uh, sold to uh, did not like her as a wife or as a concubine. Um, the statutes here prohibit her being sold to a foreigner. Uh, remember how Joseph was sold as a slave when uh, merchants came by. You could not do that to a wife in this culture. If she was married to a son, she was treated like a daughter. If there was another wife, then she was to be cared for just like she had been before. I know all this sounds crazy to us, doesn't it? But we can see as we read these statutes that they provide a measure of protection for women in a difficult culture that is um, different, very different from ours. Now, the rest of chapter 21 goes on to deal with statutes that, deal, that compose the Book of the Covenant that deal with crimes concerning the death penalty and with personal injury. And they list here in this chapter, we're not going to read all this, but they list the three capital murder crimes, which are premeditated murder, not just killing, but premeditated murder. That upholds the Sixth Commandment here, elaborates on it, violence against against parents, either physical or verbal, that upholds and elaborates on the fifth commandment, and then kidnapping. Um, the statutes on personal injury here have to do with slavery, so it expands on these earlier uh, statutes. Uh, there's also a statute here about injury to a pregnant woman and a child, and you may have talked about this in your small group, but it is very evident from this statute in chapter 21 that um, when God speaks about injury to a pregnant woman, he considers the child she is carrying to be a human being and there is to be restoration or restitution um, if that child is injured as well. Look at verse 22 with me in chapter 21. 
When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judge determines. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. The meaning here is clearly if there is harm to either the pregnant woman or her unborn child, um, God supports the sanctity of human life, even in these statutes of the Book of the Covenant. Now, I also want to make the point as we finish up today that these many statutes in the Book of the Covenant also uh, emphasize uh, have the same emphasis as Jesus's two commandments in Matthew 22. God starts the book of the covenant with instructions on the correct way to worship the one true God. And then he gives stipulations that elaborate how to love others in the world just as much as you love yourself as he focuses on the care and protection of others. Now, as we sit here today, as believers, we're not under the Mosaic Covenant and the law, are we? We are under the new covenant that was instituted with the death, burial, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are all saved by faith through grace, not by the Mosaic Covenant or the law. But there are truths from the Mosaic Covenant that I found fascinating when I sat and studied this for an extended period of time. And the first thing that I was fascinated by and I learned from the Mosaic Covenant is that when God is our deliverer, he should be the authority in our lives as well. You know, God begins that Mosaic Covenant back in chapter 20 by stating who he is and what he's done for the nation of Israel. He is the one true God. He has brought them out of slavery as their redeemer, so he is the authority in their life. You know, most of us can say the same thing today as we sit here um, studying the Bible together. He is the one true God who has redeemed each of us as well through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we are to give him authority in our lives based on the same Two things, who he is and what he has done for us. Look at Psalm 18 on your verse sheet. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. That is who he is in all of our lives, ladies. Um, and this is what he's done. Look at John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. When God is our deliverer, he should be the authority in our lives. So the question we all need to ask ourselves today and probably every day is, um, who's the authority in our life? Is it the word of God? Or is it the culture? That's uh, what God was saying to the nation of Israel. Do not let the culture of polytheism be the authority in your life. Let these commandments I'm giving you be your authority. A great thing for all of us to remember today. The next thing that we can take home with us today from the Mosaic Covenant is that the foundation of a truly transformed life is putting God first 
and loving God most. You know, God's plan for Israel was to redeem them and then transform them into a nation like no other, a nation that would worship the one true God. And because of that, they would shine a light out into the darkness that would reveal to all the peoples of the world who he was His plan is the same for each one of us today. His plan is to redeem us and then transform our lives so that the light of who he is shines out into the dark world around us and there's not a person that we know that can't tell our lives are different because of the one true God. A couple of weeks ago, Ted said in one of his sermons that John 14, 6 needs to be the lens for our worldview. I believe it also needs to be the foundation for transforming our lives just as God wanted the commandments to transform the nation of Israel. Look at John 14, 6 on your verse sheet. I am the way. The truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now the final thing that we should take home with us today is that God cares about our horizontal relationships, doesn't he? He cares about our relationship with him, but that should change the relationships we have with everyone around us. Six of his 10 commandments deal with how we treat others. And when Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment is, he includes how we treat others into the greatest commandment. Our horizontal relationships matter to God. And when we love others as much as we love ourselves, We find peace and joy in those relationships, don't we? But we also show them the God who was first in our lives. Look at John 13, 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Horizontal relationships matter. Pray with me. Father, you are a great and a good God. We um, just praise your name today for the truth of your word. Lord, we ask you for the power of your spirit that we would obey your word and that you would be the authority in our lives, not the culture. Lord, I just pray that each and every one of us would leave here today um, because changed because you have spoken a word to us. I thank you for these women. I thank you for the truth of your word, and I thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.